Hello and welcome to another episode of the Detox Podcast, a culture and conversation podcast where you can detox from the world around you and get a window into how other people live their lives. Come detox with detox. I'm your host, Joshan. On today's episode, I had the absolute pleasure of speaking to Katie Yamasaki. Katie is a muralist and children's book artist. She's traveled widely, painting over 80 murals with diverse communities around the world that explore local issues of identity and social justice. Her children's book work focuses on similar themes of social justice and stories from underrepresented communities. And on today's episode, we talked about her latest book, Shapes, Lines, and Light, My Grandfather's American Journey. Shapes, Lines, and Light is Katie's portrait of her grandfather, Yama, as she knew him. It's a biography that follows the events and circumstances of his life from his childhood in an outstanding from his childhood, an outstanding academic record at the University of Washington, the imprisonment of family members from the West Coast in camps during World War II while he was trying to begin a career in New York, raising a family and finding a place without red lines to settle outside Detroit and starting and building his own firm of architects. This conversation is one of my favorites. Katie is an incredible human being. Her father had an incre- her grandfather, excuse me, had an incredible story and just overall I think you're going to enjoy it. But before we get to the episode, I do want to let you know that today's episode of the podcast is brought to you by Empire Toys. Nostalgia is something everyone loves, and Empire Toys in Keller, Texas is on nostalgia overload. With toys and action figures from the 70s, 80s, 90s, and today, Empire Toys is a one-stop shop for a trip down memory lane and a chance to reclaim what was once yours but likely sold at a garage sale. Check out Empire Toys on Facebook, Instagram, or at TheEmpireToys.com. Now, without further ado, my conversation with Katie Yamasaki is right up after this. Welcome back to the Detox Podcast. With me at this time, I am very excited to talk to her, Katie Yamasaki. Katie, how are you doing today? I'm fine. Thanks so much for having me on the show. I'm so happy to be here. I I have to tell you, there is so much goodness with your book that we're going to talk to you about today. I almost said talk to the book. The book no, we're going to talk to you about the book. Um, your book that you've got out, Shapes, Lines, Light. I am there's a lot of goodness within the book. Um, There were a few specific lines that really resonated with me as a parent and as just an individual who's lived in the world. Um, And I think there's so many key things that that readers and listeners will be able to really appreciate. So we'll get into that in a moment. Um, But for listeners of the podcast, new listeners of the podcast here at the Detox Podcast, I like to invite listeners to quote unquote, detox from the world around them and get a window into how other people live their lives. So I'd like to ask my guest right at the top of the show, Katie, what are you currently detoxing from? You know, I listened to this question with a lot of other um, guests that you've had on the show. And I think that what I'm trying to detox from, I also have, like you, I have a five-year-old and um, the world is full of constant opportunity to do kind of amazing things with her, you know, and for her and you know, alongside her, I have a long history of being an art teacher and there's just so much to do. And what I'm trying to detox from is doing too much because I feel like my reflex is to constantly 
think about doing more all the time, more projects, more fun, more, you know, crafts, more costumes, more everything. And the more I can keep it simple, the better off we all are. So I'm trying to detox from just doing the most all the time. I can completely <laughs> like align with that frame of like frame of mind. I, I, with the, the work that I do uh, on a day-to-day basis, I, I sort of wake up wanting to, to really change the world on a grand scale and also a small scale. And I, I understand both of those components. And so I understand where I fit in in the small part. And I think, but if I could just add a little bit more, if I could just yeah. take on a little bit more, then it would work. And I, I do, to your point, I have to detox from that, put some separation and go, you know what? There's only so much we can do in a day. And if I don't allow myself to have these moments with my own kids, then I'm doing them a disservice. I'm doing myself a disservice yeah. too. Yeah. When I was an art teacher, I was an art teacher in the New York City public schools and Detroit public schools for about 14 years. And I am like an over-preparer. So I would often prepare these elaborate projects and lessons and they were wonderful. But often I would find that the days that I was least prepared when we would do the most simple activity would be the most meaningful days with the students when we would spend more time kind of thinking and talking and figuring things out on a smaller, less complex scale. And so I try to bring, I'm trying to bring that home right now, just doing less and being more present in the process. I like that. And the, the, what you said there about the, the collaboration and the conversation it resonates so much. Yeah. It's so fascinating too, from a from a, a children's perspective. The more that you interact, and the more that you're having sort of these problem solving or just discussions, the more that you're getting out of it as a person. Like one yeah. gets out of it as a person, and then the more that you can see that they're getting out of it. Absolutely, as, as well. I love that. Thank you for sharing Thanks. that. Oh my goodness. Um, all right. So before we talk about shapes, lines, and light, I want to sort of wind the clock back a bit. Um, and talk about sort of your origins with art and then also some of your origins with writing um, and how how both how those paths sort of originated for you. Okay. Well, I come from an, a family of artists, which is, you know, why this book exists in the first place. But I actually didn't really want to be an artist growing up because I was a little bit intimidated by the successes in my family. You know, my grandfather was this world famous architect. My grandmother was trained to be a concert pianist. My uncle won the Pulitzer Prize for documentary photography. And it's kind of like on and on. Yeah. Those are the three biggest. But I felt like if that's how you do art, like I, I don't really want to do that. You know, it felt like too much pressure. And I wasn't inclined to like the highly technical arts either. So I kind of thought I would be a social worker or a teacher or something like that because I have a huge family and we're kind of split between like artists and teachers, many generations. And so um, I kind of went to college along those lines. And then I had an internship. I took my first drawing class when I was 20 and I was terrible. And I, um, you know, I, but I loved it. I loved how it felt. I loved how it felt more than I was embarrassed by how bad my drawings were. So I would do these drawings and it just felt good to kind of change the way that I was looking at the world all around me. Cause I was looking at light and shadow differently. I was looking at shapes differently and just kind of experiencing the world differently. And but my drawings were so uh, bad. I mean, they looked like <laughs> they they just were they were just very enthusiastic, but very poorly rendered drawings for you know for a few years. And um, but I also didn't really know 
what I would do with it because I wasn't drawn to the gallery world at all or the fine art world at all. I wanted to do something that had social impact. And um, so then when I was going into my junior year of college, my aunt, who was a Tai Chi teacher, uh, was best friends with Ed Young, who was like a very famous children's book illustrator from, you know, for many years. At that point in the mid 90s, he had illustrated over 80 books for children and he needed somebody to come and archive all of his work. So I had the gift of the experience of going to live with him and his family for a summer and going through all of his books um, and cataloging everything. And what I saw was that, and what he encouraged me was that like, most of your drawings will be bad. Look in your sketchbooks. Your sketchbooks should be full of you figuring stuff out and making bad drawings. And I was like, well, that's convenient because my drawings are almost <laughs> entirely all bad. I'm but I also there. was seeing, yeah, exactly. I was also seeing just that he, um, was telling these stories that you didn't really often see get told, these stories of Chinese culture and folklore. And, um, you know, we grew up in a factory town north of Detroit in the 80s where being Asian American, being Japanese American was kind of like what among the worst things you could be. Mm-hmm. Being Japanese American in Detroit, Vincent Chin, you know, it was just a, it was a terrible time. And so, like, you never saw people like you portrayed in any kind of positive light. And um, so to see these stories um, was really powerful. And I thought, well, this is this is what I want to do. And I also knew that who I wanted as an audience were children and teachers, because those were, you know, that was the people, those were the people that I was around all the time. I, right. I have a huge family and many teachers, and we we're just always in and out of the classroom. My mom was a kindergarten teacher. And um, so that's kind of how I found my way into books. But um, I went and got my MFA at the School of Visual Arts for illustration you know, 2001 to 2003, my second week of school was 9-11. And, um, but which we can talk about a little bit later, but um, I just um, had a hard time breaking into the children's book industry after that. I finished in 2003 and had like a great agent and everything, but couldn't really get anything published. So I started painting murals. And so murals became, you know, over the past 20 years, my main way of um, understanding story and storytelling mm-hmm. because what I was doing was kind of um, embedding myself in diverse communities around the world and like really listening and learning all of these stories that were like gifts, you know, and then partnering with people in the community to use this big platform of a wall in a public space to tell their stories. Right. So while I was constantly developing picture books, I mean, steadily from 2000, about 2000 until you know, 2018, when my books finally started really getting published, I um, I was constantly embedded in other people's stories and in finding ways to tell stories. And um, that was kind of, the writing was by necessity, you know, for the murals. We, there was always a lot of writing around the murals. But um, I think more so than the writing was just trying to figure out what kind of stories I wanted to tell. And those, a lot, a lot of those came from, the people that I've met along the way in these, you know, at this point, I think I've done close to 100 murals all over the world. Wow. And um, so those, uh, that's kind of my way into books. And now a lot of my books, it used to be that I just wanted to do books and murals were kind of like, a, it was like my plan B, which right. is like a strange plan B, because it's not like it's a lucrative plan B. It's just like <laughs> an exhausting plan B, but a right. wonderful plan B. But it, um, it became its whole own thing. And now a lot of my books have a lot to do with the stories that I've developed and the relationships that I've cultivated through the years with these mural projects. 
That is incredible. I, you, you said something a moment ago that really stuck with me where you talked about when you were, when you were working with Ed Young, I want to just go back a bit. And he, and he specifically said to you that the sketchbook should be full of, of you, like examples of you figuring, like one figuring it out. Right. And, and that resonates so much because I think in a lot of work, like we're talking about art and we're talking about books and talk about architecture in a moment. Sure. Um, and I think that that's a, that's a, a lesson that we can apply across the board so many times when we're trying to grow as people, whether we're doing inclusive, inclusive, inclusive work, right. Or we're doing, um, uh, other things. It can seem like, no, I've got to have it just right. I've got to have it perfect. I've got to have it figured out with all the solutions. It's like, no, it's messy. This work is messy with a capital M and, and it, it requires a lot of that growth and that, that struggle and and the examples of, of art, we tried this and now we're going to keep working and we're going to keep working and we'll get there. And and I, I, I just absolutely love that you said that. And I love the, the fact that you talk about the connections that you've made with the, the, uh, I think exactly what you said was the stories that you're telling now are books that you developed with, uh, with the connections that you made through the mural works. Do do I have that correct? Okay. Yeah. And I think that like the murals have taught me so much. Um, and you know, one thing is going back to what you were just saying about the kind of discomfort with, with imperfection and the discomfort Mm. with making things that you don't really like and you feel like oh this isn't that good when you do that on a gigantic scale like there you kind of have to really think about what is the purpose of the work you know Mm. what is like my first big public outside project was this 60 foot by 40 foot wall um on the on fourth avenue in brooklyn in a very public space and you know when the scaffolding came down off of that mural, it was my first time working outside and working on scaffolding. And I had a team of 14 teenagers and like we were working on this scaffolding that was built on top of a 25 foot building. Like it went way up and it was kind of, it was terrifying on so many levels. And then when the scaffolding came down, I saw that in the painting, there were several important things to me that I felt did not turn out well. And I didn't go back and look at it for another like two months. I was like, you can't take a mural and like tuck it under your bed. You know, it's like there for the world. And I (laughs) felt so disappointed. And then at the dedication, my parents were there and like the girls in the group, you know, this was their their story that they were putting up on this huge scale in this super public space. And for them, they were like, you know, at the dedication crying and talking about the power of having their story out there like this. And, you know, and I was here critiquing like some technical aspect, like, oh, I wish that this looked a little bit different, or I wish that this had, you know, that this had come out more how it looked yeah. in the design. And my dad was like, yeah, but this is not about you. Yeah. And I was like, oh, like, what a relief, you know, because it was like, this is actually just about getting their story up in a way that they want to tell it for the people who are their audience. Is that I'm just kind of like helping figure out how to get it up there. And so that was very liberating, you know, and I think that a lot of the time with the books, nothing is ever perfect. And so I'm able to like, because of my mural work, I'm able to let go of these imperfections because I know that the purpose of the story actually isn't to do with me. It's to do with the story, you know, and the people in the story who have their own life. So yeah, murals are very educational in a slightly large dramatic way at times, (laughs) but they really get the point across. I, I like how you you talked about the 
the it it's not it's not about you or it's not about one who's who's creating it in this example right it's about being yeah. a vessel or an outlet yeah. or a a, a means yeah. to the exactly. story and i think that's so easy to to get caught up in a lot of different i like to call them like 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 um ticky tacky i think i heard that as a soccer term um but maybe mm -hmm. i'm wrong on uh, and I'm going to get roasted in, in uh, an email sometime. But regardless, just like nitty gritty, that's that's really what I was talking about. Like the, yeah. like the real yeah. like, oh, this didn't work out or yeah. this, this thing wasn't organized the way it should have been. And it's so easy to just get irritated. And then it's like you step yeah. back, like I, I step back, one steps back, right? And it's like people are crying like you're talking about because their story is told. People are hearing mm -hmm. it and they're interacting with it and they're engaging yeah. with it in the way that these individuals always wanted it to, to right. be engaged with. And, and that yeah. is powerful beyond words. Thanks. I, I want to talk about the book now. I want to shift gears slightly and talk about shape, shapes, lines, and light, uh, which is incredible. And there's, I won't, I won't go into detail of the books, but there's one particular part after having read through the books, I kept coming back to this part at the very beginning, at the very beginning. Um, so there's a part where you're talking about your, your grandfather, um, who's mm -hmm. the subject of the book. And there were two particular, so, um, I'm not trying to make it about me, but, but see myself within the okay. book, which is what I think most people do when yeah. they're, they're reading the book. Absolutely. Um, so I came out as bi plus last year for the first time and having lived very, very, um, unsure of my own orientation for a very, for most of my 35 years of existence. And, mm -hmm. and, um, there were two things that really stood out to me. There was one where within the, the part of the book where he's talking about before he was my grandpa, he was a kid and on and on. Yeah. There was one part that said, um, a lot of the world happened to him. Yeah. And that just like, it, I paused on that moment and then, and then yeah. of course, and, and he happened to a lot of the world and mm -hmm. I love, like there were, to me, there was a whole story in those two lines. Thank you. And, and it resonated yeah. with me. And then the, the other part of it that really rang home was when it said, um, when Yama, am I saying that correctly? Yama? Mm -hmm. Okay. When Yama was young, he noticed a feeling in his chest that changed from space to space. And I identified with that because there were spaces that I intrinsically understood as safer spaces right. to be who I was that mm -hmm. I couldn't put into words until way later. And obviously it was, it, I'm talking about something that is unseen versus something that is seen um, from mm -hmm. a diversity perspective. But those, those two pieces, those two pages accompanying the rest of the book really told me the, the power of needing to have the representation and needing to understand um, one's place in the world and in the country. Yeah. And so, so I just wanted to like kind of share a little bit of, of my, uh, perspective. And if you're listening to this, this podcast and you haven't bought the book already, there's, there's your, your segue. You can go <laughs> buy the book right now and know exactly what I'm talking about. So we'll put links in there as well. Um, but Katie, I want to ask you, what was your sort of core motivation for wanting to write this book? I actually just want to respond to first what you were just talking about, yeah. because, um, that a lot of the world happened to him and he happened to a lot of the world. I haven't talked about this, that in particular at all yet. And I really appreciate your yeah. 
reading of it. And I think one reason I wanted to say that was because, you know, there's something dramatically amazing about his story because he built these massive structures. You know, he's most known for the World Trade Center. But what I hope is that when kids read that and understand those lines, that they'll think about the stories of their family and, you know, and how the world has happened to any one of them is also amazing and important and find a way to get at the truth of the story of their own family. Because I think that, you know, a story like this gets to get told in a book because of his achievements, you know, largely because of his achievements, but all of these stories are so important for understanding our place, you know, and I think that um, I've, I've had a lot of motivations to tell his story through the years. Um, what I landed at was not necessarily where I began. And I think what I landed at of why I wanted to tell his story was because he spent so much of his life from his early days making the world see him. You know, he was going to be seen. Yeah. And um, that was because Asian Americans and Japanese Americans were made invisible. Right. You know, and that is so wrong and what i hope is that like you know he had his own journey he had his own mind and his own creative expressions and way of kind of way of kind of creating space for himself but the drive of needing to be seen at that level you know is something that i think a lot of young people and young people of color and young people who feel invisible can relate to that they have to do so much to feel important and what i hope is that kids will feel that just their existence on this planet is has incredible inherent value mm-hmm. that their life is valuable because they exist here today right now Absolutely. they don't have to be the fastest they don't have to be the smartest you know they don't have to be the best anything you know and i think that his drive was you know it had to do with a bunch of different things you know anybody's drive does but i you know what i hope for the book and one of my motivations is just to be able to talk to kids about um, about this concept of feeling invisible and what we do as a result of it. You know, originally I think that like, I wanted to make the book because I wanted to distance him, like who he was as an artist and a person is, um, so not represented by what he's most known for. So he's most known for the world trade center. And then this other, um, very troubled project that was called Gridaigo houses in St. Louis. And he, he, what became, you know, very famous for both of those, but those represent him least, you know, in terms of who he was as an artist and as a person, what he wanted to do, I believe, you know, in, in his, what he's done is he wanted to create spaces in response to how he was made to feel in spaces that he entered as a young person in this country, as a young Japanese American man who would go into schools, would go into banks, would go into, um, jobs where he was working and was rejected, was profiled, was discriminated against, was, um, you know, treated in a suspicious way, even when he was the chief architect on like his first big project, which was a naval base in upstate New York. He was turned away at the gate when he was going to check on his own project by the military police who saw him as a threat. You know, he was investigated by the FBI, by the NYPD. He was born in Seattle, you know? And um, so my main motivation was to, have the young reader consider why we create the spaces that we do and who they're for. Because I think that's what he was interested in. He wanted to create 
spaces at a human scale where people could feel in his words, serenity, surprise, and delight. And I think that like, you know, that is a lot of architectural trends have been to overwhelm or empower or overpower, impress, amaze. And he wanted to invite in the human experience and Mm. make people feel uplifted. So I wanted to like give the reader the chance to get to know him in this other way. And also to consider um, what is the impact of making somebody feel invisible and what are the spaces that we inhabit and why are they the way that they are? Yeah, that is, I don't have the words to describe how powerful that is. It is incredible. And uh, like, I, I'm, I'm starting to get a little emotional as well because it's so, because it's so needed, right? Exactly yeah. what you said is, is, yeah. is needed because it is, been a travesty in our country's history with how we have made populations of people invisible. Yeah. One, by refusing them entry to places and spaces. Mm -hmm. And two, by not teaching history. Mm -hmm. I'll give my own example and lead with a moment of vulnerability. I know I've said this on the show one, uh, a couple of times, but, um, I didn't realize until college the large gaps in, in some of my historical educational knowledge. I was not made aware of the Japanese internment camps existence oh, yeah. until I got into college. Yeah. And it was one of those moments where you hear it with such, and you read it, like I've got a textbook in front of me with pictures. Mm-hmm. And I read it with such clear sincerity. I go, I don't under, like this does not compute. Yeah. And I had yeah. to do my own research. Luckily, yeah. Google was a thing at the time. Um. And Listen, I just, when I was in, yeah. oh, go ahead, sorry. Oh, no, I was just going to say, and that's where I started realizing, I think I've been selectively lied to, right? Like, mm-hmm. like, oh, yeah. we're not, di- di- we're not talking, to, we're not ignoring the fact that World War II existed, but we're not going to tell you what we did to our own people in this one specific right. area of the country yeah. during that. Right. Yeah. When I was, and I talk about this quite a bit, um, I have a book about that period of time, but um when I was in middle school on the anniversary of Pearl Harbor, my teacher said, my U.S. history teacher said, oh, Katie, you're Japanese. Why don't you tell the class what happened today in history? Mm-hmm. Which, of course, is like, okay. So I chose to use that as a moment to talk about how the night of Pearl Harbor, my great-grandfather was arrested by, by the FBI and sent to a military prison. And then in the weeks following, my whole family on the West Coast was incarcerated for four or five years for the length of the war, only able to get out um, if they joined the war which some of them did and went to Europe, or if they, um, a couple of them got lucky and got helped by some Quakers. But, but after I told my teacher this, he said, uh, that never happened. And I was like, yes, it did. And he was like, no, it didn't. I was like, yes, it did. And we went back and forth like that for a while, but I was like in seventh grade and not kind of trained to, or inclined to argue with my teachers. And, but I was just, it made me think about like how often, like you were saying, selectively taught, like how often are people's histories just so inconvenient to somebody who doesn't know better or doesn't want to know better. So inconvenient to somebody's idea about what this country is supposed to be that they're just completely denied. Right. You know, and I think that, um, you know, they're working on this book was so triggering because, um, you know, there's all of like the family stuff, but then there's also the fact that while I was working on it, you know, all these Asians were killed in Atlanta. Asians were being killed around the country with COVID. And then all of a sudden there's all this talk about, um, 
about like the you know the history of Asians in this country that this is nothing new you know and it, it was so frustrating to just be be working on this project and reading about what he went through and feeling like where are we you know yeah. where are we in space and time and yeah. um yeah I mean and to to that point I mean when we're talking about the history aspect I mean another thing I wasn't aware and I think this is true for for many who are probably not based in Oklahoma, but not being aware of what, what's colloquially referred to as Black Wall Street in Tulsa in the 20s oh, right. um, mm-hmm. until HBO's Watchmen series came out right. that depicted it in detail. And then people are like, "What? What is this? This existed? Yes, it right. existed, but you right. don't hear about it because then that would that would dispel a lot of a lot of stereotypical myths." And I'm using air quotes here, right? That are taught in, mm-hmm. in history classes that that negates a lot of um, historical analysis. To your point about the rise of anti-Asian sentiment in this country because of a direct result, I would say maybe. Um, a more concentrated effort as a direct result of COVID. And then that did then allow um, organizations and groups to be able to speak up and say, this is to your point, this is nothing new. This has always occurred and you are now hearing about it, but this isn't, Oh, why, why now? Well, it's occurring more frequently right now, but it's not new. Yeah. 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 It's a lot. <laughs> it is. It is. It is a lot. And I want to, I want to, um, I think it's important. And I think it, I want, I want to close the bow on this part of it is go, um, because we could continue and, and, and on and on. Yeah. I will say though, I think it is so powerful though, that you were able to work on this book and put out a book here in this time period when it's so needed for folks to, for kids to see themselves represented, for people to see themselves represented, and to understand that while this individual was very extraordinary, he wanted to create the pieces, or the spaces and places where everyone could feel welcomed, mm-hmm. and as an acknowledgement that you don't have to be the most extraordinary person in yeah. any field in order to have value, because you you already have value. Yeah, right. He felt that so deeply that yeah. he needed to be the best. And it really, you know, it, it really came at a cost. And, um, you know, you look at this, you know, all, there's so much conversation now about kind of intergenerational trauma and race-based yes. trauma. And um, you see it get passed down and it's so unfair. Yeah. And, you know, you just kind of want to think, you know, be part of, you know, all of these things. You just hope that you're like, one more one more thing to tell a kid hopefully what other people are also telling them right. that who you are matters just as you are right. you have inherent value for the simplest of your existence exactly you know absolutely now you did mention one of the things that he's most known for is is the world trade center so would mm-hmm. you mind walking the listeners through a little bit about his his approach to that work and perhaps um, his legacy with regards to the building sure yeah you know so the, the world trade center is really um decentralized from my book because it you know it doesn't represent um kind of the best of his work in my opinion but of course it was something that had to be in there because it's what he's most known for but you know until that project and shortly before he had a much smaller architecture firm and they did they worked out of detroit right 
Troy, Michigan, and they had, um, you know, they did beautiful university buildings, religious structures, all World's Fair projects, all different kinds of um, kind of large, but, you know, more moderate type of buildings. Um, And then when they won that project, when he was selected as the chief architect, it wasn't something he could turn down. I think that there's also this thing that after the war, he was seen by the Japanese American community as this symbol of success when they had lost everything, their homes, their jobs, their every, their everything. Families had been split all apart. And, and so he was somebody who came out of the war and in the fifties was growing in fame. Sixties was growing in fame. And so um, he became a symbol to the community. He also had a lot of, you know, financial responsibility because the economics of the Japanese American community were also decimated during the war, right. you know, as you can imagine. And um, so it wasn't like he could turn that down. It was a project that everybody in the world wanted to get. And it, um, and you know, when you do a project with that many interests, financial interests and political interests and everything like that, you, there are a lot of cooks in the kitchen. And so how the work turns out is not always how you wanted it to. So there was some discord around like the height of the building and stuff like that. But, um, you know, what he had to do at that point when they won was to grow the office immensely. So I don't know if they doubled the amount of architects, but they had to get a whole bunch more architects, which meant that moving forward after the World Trade Center, he then was responsible for all of these other architects. So it impacted the type of work that they could then proceed with. So then it was a lot more big corporate structures, big banks, um, things like that, that were less what he was known for more, more criticized, I think, by the architecture establishment. But in his early years, you know, it's interesting, I mean, terrible, but interesting to look at the reviews of his work, you know, when it was to me and like many other people who appreciate his work, like the most spectacular reviewers would start out by like describing his body, his diminutive stature, his, you know, his small frame, his decorative approach, to his work, you know, his effeminate approach to his work, just kind of just such racial racist overtones and also just purely emasculating the Asian man, which is such a thing. So, um, you know, I think that um, the World Trade Center was a really complicated project for him artistically and personally. It was full of a lot of compromises, but it was like a massive achievement, you know, by any measure. And, um, you know, I love the buildings. And when I moved, I moved to New York in 2000 and, um, you know, I used to go salsa dancing at like windows in the world. And it was, I always felt like, oh, wow, you know, that's so cool. My grandpa did that. Even as a kid growing up, that's so great. That's so neat. And then when, um, but when the buildings came down, you know, all of a sudden you kind of see, you know, he had died in 1986. So he had been long, you know, long past, um, thank God. He would have been devastated and um what you saw what our family saw was that the world trade center then was turned into this piece of pro-war propaganda mm. that none of us believed in right. you know it was like twin towers war in iraq you know yeah. twin towers weapons of mass destruction and we were just like what and so it made me think because that was right when i was starting um at graduate school it made me really think about what are the symbols that i want to create you know because when you make a symbol then you're kind of responsible for it, you know, and times change and what he made then was different. You know, it meant something different to him at that time. Um, And there were lots of ways to look at it depending on your political 
leanings, yeah. um, what those towers meant, you know, and I appreciate a lot of different interpretations of them, but, you know, um, I, you know, I really uh, intentionally took a long time after 9-11 to do his book because I did not want it to be in any way affiliate. I didn't want it to come out on the 20th anniversary of 9-11, right. it was like 21 years after, you know, I didn't want it. I wanted it to be as far from 9-11 as possible. Sure. You know, it was just um, not a connection that I wanted to deepen in any way. It was already way too much. Right. No, thank yeah. you for, thank you for sharing that. And it, it, <clears throat> it is, it's interesting what you talked about with regards to the type of work he wanted to do and enjoyed designing. Yeah. And then, you know, it was opportunity couldn't pass up as a result of that. Couldn't quite go back to some of those other projects right. in the same yeah. way, more yeah. like needed to, like you talked about the needing to sustain the staff that he had acquired right. at right. that point. I want to know, since you did talk about, let, like let's throw those horrible reviewers out 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 of the way um what were some of the the pieces that of his that maybe really resonated with you well the main my favorite building is where i got married it's called <laughs> mcgregor memorial and it's a conference center at wayne state university in downtown detroit and um it was also where his memorial was um, when he passed away. And so my first memory of that was being 10 years old in that building at his memorial and thinking like, wow, there's a lot of people here. But then um, it, it's like a campus building and it's so beautiful. You know, it's um, it kind of has, you know, just these really interesting shapes and the way that the light passes through this, the skylights and this outside space. And it's right in the heart of Detroit, which also is really meaningful to like, to me and to my family. And um, so that to me is, you know, some of his best work. Also like this, he had a World's Fair, a Pacific Science Center um, and some religious buildings that I've gotten to go to through the years. One is in Japan called Shinji Shumeikai and one is in Bloomfield Hills, Michigan um, called Temple Bethel, but just buildings where you do feel that peace and that up that feeling of uplift and of just light so much light and I think he was very impacted by the way that Japanese architecture is this constant engagement of the inside world with the natural world and so he was always kind of aspiring to create this engagement with the natural world no matter the environment and um those those buildings you know were among my favorites um also his house you know I grew up we grew up at his house every weekend and um it was I still have dreams there, you know, yeah. being, cause I, we were always there. When I think of being at his house, I think of being there with like all my cousins and my aunts and uncles. And we were just there all the time. And it was um, as kind of fancy as it was, cause it was like an architect's house. Sure. It was also like made for us to enjoy ourselves there. You know, it was like, uh, yeah, I don't think we, we never broke anything important <laughs> over <laughs> there. It was, if that I can recall. Um, yeah. But it was like a place where, like I have really love lovely kind of family memories. So, and those like the visuals, the aesthetics of that translate when I enter into a building um, for the first time of his, and it's like, Oh, that feels like his home in this way, yeah. you know, the height of a guardrail, 
or the feeling of a certain kind of carpet under your feet or something like that. Yeah. I, I loved watching it. So obviously this is a podcast, so it's just audio, but I loved watching you talk about him because your face lit up and I could see, I could see the memories just sort of like hovering above, yeah. uh, above you as you were talking, as we're wrapping up this part of the podcast, I do want to ask, so obviously, um, folks can, uh, where, so two questions I would say, as we're closing this out mm -hmm. one, I want to know, uh, uh, where should folks go to, to acquire the book one? And we can put the links in the show notes. Mm -hmm. And then two, if there is one particular lesson that you really want the listeners or the readers to take away from the book that we've not talked about, what would that be? You know, I think that, um, one thing that's interesting to think about is anytime you write about your family, you're writing about your family from your experience, you know, and um, my grandfather's story is our grandfather's story. And it's no more my story than it is my cousin's stories or my aunts and uncles, my, my dad's story. And, you know, it's much more, you know, my dad and my uncle Taro, my aunt Carol's stories. But, um, you know, when you have the platform to tell this story, and it's a story that people want to hear. One of the reasons I was also compelled to tell the story was because other people were starting to talk about doing it. And I was like, no, no, I think it should come from inside of our family. Right. But, um, you know, there's a certain, there's a certain weight there. And what I most hope is that the story resonates with the family as, you know, as they would want it to be told as well. But also just that, like, I'm one person in this pretty large family. This and what I was doing is just putting my best effort to really get at the essence of his life story and his work. And there's so many, there are so many angles on it. Somebody with like a big life like that, but um, you know, and I hope that the readers really take from this story that if you can get people in your family to talk, every family has these fascinating stories. Um, and if they're true and they're honest, then they are amazing. And, you know, hopefully that, you know, this will get more people talking to the older generations before those stories disappear. Yeah. I love that. That is fantastic. Well, we are going oh, the book. Oh, yes. Yes. So, oh, Where yes. Can you so buy the book? We, you can get the book. Um, I guess you can get it through Norton's Norton young readers. Uh, there are links on my website. If anybody wanted to go to my website, which is just my name, Katie, I'm Also um, you could buy it from my favorite independent bookstore here in Brooklyn, Greenlight bookstore or any other independent bookstore. They're all my favorites, but Greenlight is like my home bookstore. I love it. So we will put the link to your website in the show notes. And so people can go and purchase it directly from there. That is fantastic. All right. Well, Katie, we are going to transition to the last segment of the show. It's a segment where I, where I, where I, which I, what I, I like to call it. I don't know. I guess I, I should try and talk and then be a little bit easier, but I would say I like to call it things to check out. It's a segment where I uh, provide a recommendation of something I'm reading, watching and or listening to. I invite my guests to do the same. So I will go first. Uh, recommendation for reading. It is actually a young children's book called Cookies and Milk. It is written by Sean Amos, or as he's known in the music community, the Reverend Sean Amos. He is the son of Wally Famous Amos. Um, and he wrote this book, which came out earlier this year, in the same exact way you were talking about, Katie, as an opportunity to write, to, to tell his dad's and his family's story from his perspective, as opposed to it being told from outside the family. Um, I recorded with, with the Reverend Sean Amos. You can go check that out as well in your podcast feed or the detox 
detoxpodcast.com, newly redesigned website as well. You can go check that out. Uh, something that I'm watching, um, I am actually uh, starting up to watch. I don't know if anybody is a fan of Stargirl on the CW. I am. I think it's a fantastic show. And it actually has Joy Osmansky. I don't know if I'm saying her last name correctly. She plays one of the recurring characters on there. She's a villain. It's incredible. And she actually voices the audiobook for Stephen Lee's K-Pop Confidential and K-Pop Revolution. So there's a nice little tie-in to a former guest that's also been on the podcast as well. Um, And then something that I am uh, listening to, I would say right now, I'm actually uh, re-listening. Uh, I'm, I feel like I'm back in college. I'm re-listening to some Angels and Airwaves albums that I used to listen to way back in the day. I was a Blink-182 fan, followed Tom DeLonge, Angels and Airwaves. For some reason, whenever I'm writing or editing or doing anything creatively, I put on the first two Angels and Airwaves uh, uh, albums, The Adventure and I Empire. I don't know if the first one's called The Adventure, but uh, I think it's Secrets and whatever. Somebody somebody knows. Somebody's fact-checking me. It's the first album, the second album, um, and then it, it just gets me right in the mood. So anyways, Katie, what are you reading, watching, and or listening to? Well, I just finished reading. Um, they're very different. So when reading Hanya Yanagihara's books, A Little Life and um, To Paradise, whoa, um, pretty devastating, but amazing kind of reading where you're like, am I really doing this to myself? Because there is a deep uh, darkness in both books, but profound humanity. I cannot say enough how amazing those books were. Um, on the flip side, I'm when it comes to reading, I can go really dark, but when it comes to watching, I cannot. So I am re-watching all of Abbott Elementary right now before oh. the new season starts. Yes. Yes. After Cheryl Love Lee Ralph. I'm also just re-watching Cheryl Lee Ralph's um, acceptance speech at yes. the Emmys as many times as I can yes. because that was the best thing on TV lately. Yes. I and I am listening to Beyonce's new album over oh, and over again. Of course. Of course. <laughs> you got to listen to the Queen. I love it. Yep. Well, Katie, if people want to follow you and see what you're up to, what's the best way for them to do that? Um, Instagram, just my name, Katie Yamasaki. Um, and then I might keep my website pretty updated too. So, uh, but I'll be, and I'll be doing some book events with this uh, book in Seattle, LA, Detroit, um, I think Massachusetts and Brooklyn. So hopefully people will come out to some of those events. I love it. I can vouch for your Instagram content. I am a follower of yours on Instagram, okay. personal and the detox podcast one. So yes, everyone go check it out. Well, Katie, thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been an incredible conversation. I was excited for it and it exceeded my expectations. So I look forward to you coming back on the show again, anytime you'd thank like you. in the future. I really love talking to you, Joe. So thank you so much for having me. It was a real honor. You're welcome. You're welcome. Well, listeners, you've been detoxing with detox. Now go and make a more inclusive world. If you know of an interesting person or story that needs to be told, please reach out to me at detoxpodcast at gmail.com. That's D-T-A-L-K-S podcast at gmail.com. You can also reach out via Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at detoxpodcast or visit detoxpodcast.com. Also, be sure to leave us a five-star rating on iTunes if you like the show. It only takes a few seconds and it really helps us out. Link is in the show notes. Finally, thanks for listening. Please come back next week when we'll have another interesting conversation. And special thanks to my producers, Ben Lawant and Galan Aldaco. Without your help and support, this show wouldn't be possible. Thanks so much, guys. Detox is a production of Vocal. 
For more information and more programming, please visit vocalnow.com. That's V-O-K-A-L-N-O-W.com.